You know, what you find oftentimes really depends on where you look. Sometimes you don't find what it is you're looking for because where you're looking is where it isn't, right? Oil companies, they they spend a tremendous amount of money to make sure that when they grow drilling in a place, that there will be oil there. Maybe you like to watch, and I know a lot of people like to watch the reality shows of the guys who go fishing, like up in Alaska and these kind of places, and, and they spend a lot of time concentrating on the radar and plotting their maps to make sure that when they go out, that there's going to be the type of fish they want to catch in the places where they go looking to catch those fish. It's amazing, isn't it, how much time we spend looking for stuff that we never actually find because we keep looking in the wrong places. Our culture is fascinated and just intrigued with this idea of happiness. You know, we always want to be happy. Everybody wants to be happy. And we got to let everybody be happy, the culture says. Just let them do what they want to do, the culture says. Let them look within themselves and find what it is that will make them happy, the culture tells us. Well, then why in the world do we spend so much time as a culture looking for happiness in all the wrong places? As we continue our face-to-face series this morning, we'll see what happens as Jesus attends a wedding feast, okay? This wedding banquet, it's a place of celebration. And as Jesus comes to offer the kingdom, we see that it is a kingdom worth celebrating because he is a king and savior worth celebrating. Turn with me this morning to John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. In this passage, uh, Jesus goes to a small town, small village of Cana, near his hometown of Nazareth in Galilee. And he's gathered some of his disciples, not all of his disciples at this time, but he's gathered his first few. And he hasn't performed a miracle yet, okay? He hasn't done any miracles, as John calls them, signs, wonders. He hasn't done any of those yet. But all that will quickly change in this dramatic encounter. And as we study this passage today, you will see just the richness of what Jesus communicates through this passage. It is pregnant with cultural and chronological and prophetic and theological significance. So let's check it out. John 2 verses 1 through 11. It says, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of, of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. 
So a wedding in those days was a big deal, okay? It was a great and long ceremony. The ceremony would typically begin late in the evening. And the night of the marriage, the bride would leave her parents' home. And there was this uh, spectacular torch-lit ceremony where the bride would march along with the entire wedding party to the home of the groom. And so you can just imagine the scene, can't you? Just the throngs of people, the whole village coming out to march with the bride as she goes to the house of her future husband. And then, uh, you know, you'd go through the marriage formula, the ceremony would be done, the, the prescribed washings and benedictions would take place, and then the marriage feast would begin. Okay, there was no honeymoon in those days. Instead, it was just a week-long celebration with the entire village, all your family and closest friends just hanging out with you for the whole week, celebrating this marriage that had taken place. And the people from the village, the family, they all join in the celebration. They're all part of it. And the bride and the groom, they would remain dressed just in their uh, finest clothes for the whole ceremony. Okay, the whole week long. They, do, they just keep the same, just imagine being in your wedding gown, okay, for the whole week. Right? That's kind of what it was, and they were treated like a king and a queen. They were almost dressed like kings and queens. They, there was a crown made of flowers that each one would wear. And, you know, in, in this day and age, this feast was special. Um, it, it was a day and age where there was so much poverty and just constant hard work just to survive. And this festival, just the uniting of a man and a woman, there was so much joy and it would stand out as an occasion to be remembered in the village because this was special. This was worth celebrating. And for this particular wedding here in Cana, Jesus, he made the invite list. And if you go and you look at the Greek, it's clear Jesus made the invite list and then he just invited the disciples along. Okay, The invitation was to him, not likely to the other five. They probably didn't even know the other five. At that time, Jesus only had five disciples. He hadn't recruited all 12 yet. This is at the very beginning of his public ministry. And I hope you can get this middle image that Jesus comes there to celebrate the wedding. Okay, He comes there to celebrate he, we serve a God who celebrates. Okay? He is not too holy to have fun as if there could be holiness without happiness. It can't, you cannot have that. I mean, you read the Gospels and you see a Jesus who has a terrific sense of humor. He has incredible wit. He often just dispenses it at the expense of the Pharisees, right, with his comments. And he exposes these gloomy, serious Pharisees. But Jesus is the God-man who loves life and who came to give life. And if you're a Christian who has a face that could be the cover for, like, the Book of Lamentations, just, you know, do us all a favor and tell them that you go to the Catholic Church or something, okay? Because... Jesus brings life. He brings celebration. He brings joy. He puts a smile on our face. And we need to understand that in the evangelical church. He can laugh and he can have a great time. But it appears in this story that the great times are about to stop because Mary comes up to Jesus and says, they've run out of wine. Now, for Mary to notice that, for Mary to be privy to even know that they've run out of wine, it's likely that she was probably the wedding hostess, the wedding coordinator. 
Okay, so she picks up on this, that they've run out of wine. And in those days, if you run out of wine at a wedding, that's going to bring shame on the whole, the whole bridal party. Okay, it brings shame on this newlywed couple and the whole family. So much shame, in fact, that in those days, if there was a ceremony like this, and you did not have the foresight to have the provisions there for all the people who were coming to celebrate, you could actually be fined that they would give you a small fine for not, not taking care of the village if you're hosting a party like this. And so if you don't have the wine to serve the guests, I mean, you can just imagine, the fun stops. The, the, the celebration, it ends. The people aren't happy. The bride and groom aren't happy. This is not the way that you want to start your marriage, all right? And so they even had a, a, a saying in those days, without wine, there is no joy. So that, that was the common thinking. Without wine, there is no joy. And so now Mary, you know, being the very close friend, the hostess of this bridal party, she has concern over what's taking place here at these festivities, knowing that the supply is gone. And so Mary knows enough in her desperation to turn to her son. Isn't that incredible? She knows enough that, okay, if I go to Jesus... My son, maybe he can do something about this. It's incredible. And Jesus responds, woman, what to you and to me? Literally in the Greek, tiamoi kaisoi. Okay, it's, a, it's an idiom. It's a figure of speech. It's somewhat difficult for our translators to, to translate because it's a figure that creates distance between the person who is, who is, uh, who is in the interaction, Okay, and so Jesus is creating distance with Mary by this statement. It's kind of like the phrase, like, what are you saying? You know, if you can't really hear them, you could ask the question, what are you saying? But if you hear what they're saying, but you're offended or you disagree with what it is the person's saying, and, you know, tone matters, and you kind of say, what are you saying? You know, you're, you're separating yourself from the statement that was just made, right? You're creating some distance, and that's what Jesus is doing with this statement. He's, he's creating distance between himself and Mary. The statement, this tiamoi uh, kaisoi, it's the same phrase, the same expression, figure of speech, that the demons used in the Gerasenes when Jesus showed up. They said the same thing to Jesus there. They said, hey, what have you to do with us, Jesus? Why, why are you here, tiamoi kaisoi? What to you and to me? What do you have to do with us? And so this is the same phrase that Jesus is now using with his mom. And Jesus calls her woman. Now don't push too far there. Don't think that Jesus is being disrespectful of his mom or anything like that. That's, that's not the case. This is not a rude term. It's not like Jesus is saying, hey, lady. You know, that, that, that's not it at all. It would be more equivalent to saying ma'am, okay, in our, in our culture. And so even as Mary stood at the foot of the cross, you may remember Jesus called her woman. She said, woman, behold your son. John, behold your mother. It's, it's not a rude term, um, but Jesus is creating distance in his inter interaction with his mom. And then he says, my hour has not yet come. In John's gospel, this, this idea of hour is, uh, becomes the technical term for his hour of glorification, that moment of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You see it several times in John 7, John 8, John 13. It's throughout John's gospel, and it looks forward to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so he says to Mary, um, hey, 
it's not my time. It's not my hour to begin this. And then he's going to turn around and do the miracle. Does that ever bother you? How, how, does he, how does he tell Mary, hey, it's not my hour. And then he turns right around and does the miracle. Well, he is distancing himself from his mom. And he's putting a separation in place. He's telling Mary, ma'am, don't think that you can come here and fill out my planner. Right? Don't think that you can write your agenda onto my schedule. You don't have the authority to do that. See, he's saying that he's on the time frame of his father. I'm on my father's time frame. You don't get to determine when I'm Messiah. My father does that. He's showing that he is under the authority of God and not humanity. In the Roman Catholic tradition, you know, Mary is elevated to this place of deity. In fact, this is a, this is a passage in the Roman Catholic tradition that's often misinterpreted and mis- misapplied. As if Jesus went to his mom or, or, or Mary goes to Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, you need to do this miracle. And Jesus says, Oh, no, Mom, I, I can't do that. And Mary just turns to the servants and says, You just do what he says. And then Jesus kind of whimpers away and says, okay, my mommy really wants me to do this, so since mommy wants me to, I'm just going to do it. <laughs> the Catholics kind of interpret it that way, that, Jesus, that, that Mary has this pressure that she can put on Jesus. And so that's why, hey, today, you know, you pray to Mary, and she can influence Jesus in doing what you want Jesus to do. So you just go to her. But that couldn't be further from the truth, Jesus is distancing himself from his mom. It's not the only time he does it, by the way. But Jesus is letting Mary know that even though she is his mom, she's going to have to come to him like all of us. That, That Mary, the mother of Jesus, has to come to Jesus as Savior, as Lord, just like everybody else. She has a desperate need for him as well. You know, she is not this perpetual virgin who waits in heaven to hear our prayers so that she can take them to Jesus. She does not intercede for us. But at the same time, in the evangelical tradition, sometimes we fail to esteem Mary enough because understand this, she doesn't take offense at Jesus' statement. I mean, she's an incredible example of faith here. She doesn't start whining and say, oh, I just got scolded by my son. I got humiliated by my son in front of these people. No, she becomes a a beautiful example of submission. She understands that he has just distanced himself from her, and then she turns around and tells the workers, whatever he wants you to do, you do it. She asks them to submit to him, and in asking them to submit to Jesus, she herself is putting herself under the authority of Jesus. That's incredible faith. It's hard for us to put ourselves, to have the humility to put ourselves and understand our desperate need for Jesus. And here's Mary. I mean, think of the humility this takes. Jesus is is Mary's son. He's the baby she has nursed, the the, the little hands and little feet that she's just counted the fingers and the toes and kind of tickled them. She's the little boy that she's embraced. She's the son who she took to synagogue and and who, who walked through and even taught about all the religious festivals. His public ministry hasn't yet started, okay? He hasn't done anything publicly yet that you're saying, wow, look at all these miracles and everything. He hasn't done this yet. 
This, this is not Mary saying, hey, son, I'm supporting you. I've got your back. You know, whatever you need, you can count on me. I'm your mom. I'll be your biggest cheerleader. That's not it at all. This is Mary saying, I'm willing to humble myself and submit myself to my son, recognizing that he has what I need. I mean, this is an incredible example for us that we submit to God in every detail of our lives. You know, it's not just, sometimes we use that phrase, we give our lives to Jesus, and it's, it's almost like so out there that we forget that in giving our lives to Jesus, that means every detail. That, that, that means we give our finances to Jesus, that we give our marriages to Jesus, that we give our jobs to Jesus, that we give our diet, our exercise to Jesus, our sleeping habits, that we give it all to him. And this is what Mary's doing, submitting ourselves totally, completely, fully to Jesus. The theology of this story is so rich. Six stone water water pots, okay? And the imagery here of the stone water pots, these were used for Jewish purification purposes, okay? For ceremonial washings, and it's, it's almost difficult in our tradition to understand this, but if, um, if you were, again, I'm just picking on the Catholics a lot today, but if you're of the Catholic persuasion, it would almost be like uh, taking the holy water, okay, that the priests had sanctified for baptism, and using that holy water in a different manner, okay? Just like, here, have a drink of the holy water. And then the Catholics would be, oh my word, I can't believe, how, how can you just go and drink holy water like that? That's, that's not right. Or maybe if the Catholic theology has dripped into our theology at all, if, if uh, in the baptismal, and there's water in there, and it's used to baptize people, but if you look at that water and think, oh, that's, that's holy, there's something special about the water in the baptismal, you know, and then someone were just to show up and like use it as a hot tub, and you're like, oh, no, that's, that's so offensive to me. That really bothers me. If your theology leads you to believe that, then this is essentially what Jesus has done, that he's just gotten in the hot tub. Okay, that he's just started drinking the holy water. Because what he does is he takes these pots that are used for one thing, okay, ceremonial washings, purification, and then he turns around and he makes wine in them. And you can imagine this is offensive. How could you intrude into our customs? into our traditions. How could you do this? See, stone was used for ceremonial things. The ceramic, ceramic pots, that was used for just daily water or wine that you would drink. But Jesus here, he is showing himself superior to Judaism by his command. He is effectively saying, I can intrude into Jewish customs and I can do something different. See, there's so much meaning going on here. There's a lot of flavors going on, if I can put it that way. And Jesus instructs the servers to fill the water. Okay, fill, fill the water pots. These 20 to 30 gallon jugs come up about waist high. And you can just imagine these guys, these workers, when, when he gives this command. They must be thinking, this is the weirdest rabbi I've ever met. Okay, what, what kind of rabbi just tells us to start filling the ceremonial pots when we want something to drink? But Mary's already given the command, so they just, okay, we're going to go with it. And they fill them up to the brim. It strikes me that it is our job simply to be obedient. 
that when God calls us to do something, it's our job simply to be obedient, simply to fill the pots. It's Jesus' job to turn the water into wine. It's not, it's not our job to do that. It's our job to simply to be obedient and to take the gospel. It's Jesus' job to make dead people alive again. But we've got to be obedient. And so these guys, they must think Jesus is out of his mind. And they take it to the head waiter and say, here, you know, you can have a drink. And the head waiter, the head master, he drinks it and he says, wow, this is the best wine I've ever had. I mean, this is incredible. And if you're hosting a party, you know, you always serve your best stuff first, right? You, you know, you're having a bunch of people come over, you got a punch bowl, you put the punch bowl out and it's the best you got. And if you run out of that and people are still thirsty, then you're kind of hunting around in your fridge. Like, well, I got some iced tea from last week or something. You know, does that sound good? Maybe there's a Kool-Aid packet or something I can mix together here. You know, here's an old can of juice. What do you think? Jesus, he saved the best for last. It's cultural that you serve the best first and then go to the last. But here, the best is saved for last. And Jesus declares his glory through this. And the disciples believe. Why? Because this is a messianic miracle. This is a messianic miracle. In order to understand this, you have to know context. Amos chapter 9. In Amos chapter 9, it was promised that wine will flow freely in the kingdom. Okay, that there will be an abundance of wine in the kingdom. And so the ability to create wine, the best wine for a crowd, and for, to be able to serve the masses. I mean, there's so much that there's plenty for everyone. It's a sign that Messiah is present. The, the kingdom is being offered. He's come to offer a kingdom, a kingdom where wine will flow freely. And Jesus has saved the best for last. The best wine has been saved for last. Do you understand that Jesus can create, what Jesus can create for you is better than anything you've ever had before? What God can give you is better than anything you've been given before. The world is searching for joy, for commitment, for happiness in all kinds of places. But eventually all of those other places, they run dry. The celebration stops. The commitment ends, the contentment ends, the, the, the joy, it, it ceases, and you need the next thing. you got to find someone else or something else to make you happy again, to bring that joy again, to bring contentment again. And so you keep running after something else and something else and something else. you got to find something else to make you happy, something else to make you smile, something else to bring some joy, but it's always fleeting and then this law of diminishing returns takes place, where what did make me happy before no longer makes me happy. And so now I need something a little bigger, something a little larger, something a little more. And then, yeah, then maybe that will make me happy for a while. But then that too runs dry. And I need something a little bigger, something a little more, maybe something a little riskier. And then maybe that will make me happy. But it's always fleeting. You always need more and more and more. And the culture continues to ask, just look within yourself. What, what would make you happy? Jesus says, what I've come to give you is better than anything you've ever had before. When you taste what I have to offer, you won't thirst for anything else. When you eat what I have to serve, 
You won't be hungry for anything else. You'll be able to celebrate. There'll be contentment. There'll be joy, and it always lasts. Your cup will run over as you walk in the abundant life that Jesus offers to you. See, Jesus, he is the replacement for Judaism, and he is the ultimate fulfillment of life. And that's what he's telling. That's, that's what this miracle shows. Jesus performs a messianic miracle, a fulfillment of prophecy, where the wine will be provided in abundance. And the Bible says, the Bible says, you remember this? That Jesus came eating and drinking. And what did the Pharisees do? They point their finger and they said, look, Jesus is a glutton and a drunkard. He's making wine. This is what they get upset about. He's making wine, so we're pointing fingers. Now the question always comes, well, isn't the wine back then kind of like grape juice today? The answer is no. It is not like grape juice today. The wine was fermented. It is very clear in the Greek. It is fermented wine. Jesus was not serving grape juice. In fact, you can go to the underground cellars over in Israel today, the, the wine cellars over there, where they would age the wine to perfection. Okay, the wine needs to be aged at about 72 to 73 degrees constant temperature. And the only way to do that in the ancient Arab world was subterranean, underground. And so you can actually visit the underground wine cellars that they made back then to age the wine perfectly. Okay, this is fermented wine. So then the next question comes, well, was Jesus just making wine like we have today? I mean, did he just create some wonderful uh, buttercream Chardonnay or some Pinot Grigio or, or a Cabernet Sauvignon? Not exactly, okay, as there's different... Uh, alcoholic content in our wine today. Our wine today averages between 12 and 20%. I learned so much about wine this week, I got to tell you. About 12 to 20% alcohol content in our wine today. Back then, um, it was diluted with water. Okay, and so they would take um, anywhere from one part wine and one part water all the way to about 20 parts water and one part wine. So that's how it worked back then. So it was diluted. The average alcohol content in wine back in those days was about 4 to 6% alcohol. So no, Jesus is not saying it's, it's not the same wine that's used today. At the same time, it's not grape juice. All right? There is a difference. Could you get drunk off the wine Jesus was serving? Yes, you could. Experts tell us that it would take, on average, 22 glasses to become inebriated. So, you know, I don't know. I don't drink 22 glasses of anything. But... But that's, that's the way it was back then. Um, and it, it, it's also worth stating, Jesus did not create this delicious, wonderful wine for a party that's already had like a bunch to drink and just place this gigantic temptation in front of them so that he's going to attend this like drunken feast. Okay, that, that would not be in keeping with the character of Jesus. In fact, it is utterly impossible to imagine Jesus creating a substance that's going to add to the drunkenness of the crowd. It's inconsistent with his, his character. He made delicious wine so that the crowds could drink and celebrate. And there's a lot of biblical significance to wine and wine presses and how it symbolized joy and the presence of the kingdom and so much more that we even could say about that. But 
it's just worth keeping on. It is wine. It's not grape juice, but it's much different than the wine we have today. But as you read this, John chapter 2, and how Jesus creates wine, you can't help if you read through John's gospel and you read it in context, your mind can't help but go back to John chapter 1. Because in John chapter 1, Jesus is introduced as the word that became flesh, and how that nothing comes into the world except that which the Son has made. It can't come into the world apart from the Son. And now in John chapter 2, this wine comes into being. And if you were to take that wine that Jesus has created, and you were to look at it, and you were to analyze it, and you were to register it for how old it was, it would have been registered as aged wine. Okay? It, this is valuable stuff. This is the good stuff. It would have been registered as aged wine. When God created Adam, how old was Adam? He's fully grown, right? He's fully grown. If you, were, if you were to take his teeth and analyze the teeth of Adam to say, okay, how old is Adam? Does he have kids' teeth or adult teeth? Right? He has adult teeth. With Adam and with the wine, how old are they when Jesus creates them? They're moments old. Yet, with all the characteristics of maturity. Sometimes the question comes, how old is the universe? When God creates the universe, this is just miracle. It's just further proof that God creates it with all the carbon deposits, with all the minerals, with all the essentials necessary to maintain and to sustain life. I don't believe in millions of years of evolution. I don't know exactly how old the earth is. The Bible doesn't really give me that. But God has the ability to create with age. And now the skeptic would say, well, isn't that somewhat deceptive of God? I mean, why would he make something that looked so much older when, in fact, it's so much younger? Isn't that so much, somewhat deceitful, somewhat deceptive? And I would simply say, like he did with Adam, like he did with the wine. See, creation, fully formed, functioning creation, it declares the glory of God. And now with the creation of wine, Jesus has declared his own glory because he's created it. And it declares his glory. I know all the arguments about the Human Genome Project and all the arguments of the old earth, and I am convinced that if I were a skeptic geologist, I would come to the same conclusion that the world is millions and millions and millions of years old. I'm convinced I would come to that conclusion. But as I look at scriptures, it is interesting. He creates wine with age, and it shows his glory. He creates Adam with age, and it shows his glory. He created the universe with age to maintain and sustain life, and it declares his glory. His first miracle right out of the gate here displays that he is the creator God, that the Messiah comes offering kingdom, a kingdom where wine will flow freely, a kingdom where the only just king will be celebrated forever. And so this is important because the overarching question in John's gospel becomes, where are you going to get life? Where is life going to come from? And so the wine is great because Jesus is introducing himself saying, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to you. 
And the life I have to offer you in my kingdom is better than anything you've experienced so far. That I have saved the best for last. All the prophetic significance of Amos 9, all all the theological significance of this story, all of the chronological aspects and the cultural intrigue of this story, it just shows that Jesus manifested his glory, that he has creation power, kingdom blessing. It's a celebration, it's a time of joy because the Messiah has come. And the result is the disciples believe. They get it. Not perfectly, we'll see that. But they believe. His miracle confirmed his message. And so the question now comes to us, where are you looking for life? Where where are you looking for purpose, for joy, for contentment, for satisfaction? The world will tell you, just look within yourself. What will make you happy? What makes you feel good? Just go do that. Here's the problem. In theological conversations, and this phrase often comes up, you, I've said it a bunch, maybe you've said it too, that someone will say something, oh, what do you think about this person? Well, I like so-and-so, but I don't agree with everything he says. You ever say that? I know I've said it a few times. Yeah. Well, I like them. And then we add this qualifier, but I don't necessarily agree with everything they say. Listen, that could be said about anyone. I could say that about myself. I don't agree with myself all the time. You know what I mean? I think one thing one day, and then I change my mind the next day. Why? Because we're inconsistent. What makes me happy in this moment, if I'm looking within myself, may not make me happy in the next moment. Because I am inconsistent at my core. I do not know ultimately what will make me happy. My mind changes. The only way to know what will make you happy is to go to the one who created you because he knows better than you. He created you. He knows what brings happiness. He knows what brings contentment. He knows what brings purpose and satisfaction and joy because he created us and he is consistent. And so he says, here is the wine. I am offering my kingdom to you. It's a kingdom of celebration. It's a kingdom that brings happiness and joy and satisfaction and purpose because the creator of life gives something better than we've ever had before. He gives meaning, purpose, direction, clarity. He saved the best for last. And once we've come to him, there's no need to look anywhere else because we're satisfied as we walk in the plans that he has for us. We just have to come to him. And believe in him. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the kingdom you offer us is a kingdom of celebration. God, we thank you that it is a kingdom where wine will flow freely because it is a kingdom of joy and happiness and completeness. Where there will be no more inconsistency, where our minds are constantly waffling and going from one thing to the next. God, because we are an inconsistent people. God, forgive us of our inconsistency in following you. Forgive us for those areas in our lives where we do not submit to you fully. When those areas in our lives where what we think about life is not driven by your word and by proper theology, but simply by our emotion or tradition or anything else, help us to look solely to you, the giver, the creator, the sustainer of life. 
And as we do that, help us to, to share the joy of the kingdom with those we meet. God, we recognize we need your help to do this. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom we love. Amen.